The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 12th of January, 2022. It is time for a COVID vaccines booster update from Dr. Gary Groman. Uh, Dr. Groman, you're well known to us, but please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, David, and thank you again for inviting me uh, to your program. So as you know, I've um, uh, recently been working for the World Health Organization uh, on and off for about six years in the area of uh, influenza mainly, but also a little on COVID. And prior to that, I worked for the TGA for 17 years as head of immunobiology. And then prior to that, I had a research career, including a um, stint at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, and also a research career at Westmead Hospital. Dr. Groman, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at the COVID boosters. Uh, so can we just start by looking at what's happening in Israel? So in Israel, they've decided to give a fourth booster shot uh, to healthcare workers and those that are immunosuppressed. And that's been published. And they've shown that they do get extra immunogenicity, which they then equate to protection. There's it's real world data rather than case control data. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they've decided to go down that track to particularly help the immunocompromised. And we may have to consider that as well. But there's no evidence to say that a, a third dose is failing in healthy people. Uh, so that evidence is quite clear. And indeed, companies themselves have felt that there's no need for a fourth dose in healthy people. There may be those that are highly at high risk, uh, and one could consider people over the age of 70 because of immunosenescence and so on, and people that are immunocompromised, and people that are really at the front line, like healthcare workers. So uh, that can be considered, uh, that will be a policy decision, uh, but it has yet to get through the regulatory steps elsewhere in the world. So that's why Israel are using a fourth dose, uh, and only in those populations, David. Gary, just coming back to the Australian scenario, uh, a lot of our, if you like, vaccine schedules had been accelerated uh, for, for practical reasons. Uh, so the first and second dose had been accelerated. Now, our third dose is even, if you like, uh, in a shorter period of time than first suggested. What sorts of possible implications, implications might this have or none at all? Oh, it's very hard to tell, and models will tell you one thing, but scientists and, and medical researchers might tell you another. This is part of the problem, and the answer, of course, is we don't really know. Mm -hmm. So accelerating the doses from an immunological point of view, it will measure immunogenicity, is not ideal. Uh, it's uh, much better to, uh, and, and the phase two, three data shows this, you get uh, better responses uh, after four weeks and really up to eight weeks, depending on the vaccine. Uh, so people have now accelerated uh, second dose to three weeks for some vaccines. 
And now they're looking at boosters and it started at six months and then it went to five and now it's gone to four. And I think there's a concern, particularly for older people there, a bit in the same way that Israel had concerns for their older population. Now, the third dose will give uh, certainly a very good response in terms of immunogenicity. Again, they're cohort studies, they're not controlled studies, uh, but they do appear to be reducing the numbers of people that are hospitalized and particularly those in ICU. So we are seeing that around the world with the third dose. It indicates to me this is actually a three dose vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, it also suggests, uh, let's take Pfizer for example, that uh, having uh, dose one followed by dose two at say six weeks or eight weeks is probably better in terms of immunogenicity and immune response. And then having uh, a booster or third dose at uh, five months is far more ideal. That's what the data tells us. Mm -hmm. But having it at four months is fine. Um, if we can line it up and also have it with uh, influenza in March and April, even better. And I think, uh, as I've said before on your program, it would be better to um, combine these vaccines uh, a week apart or so or, or within a week uh, together during the times when people are then most at risk. And we're most at risk during the winter period because of crowding and so on. Uh, lack of ventilation, um, uh, more closer household contacts. And secondly, in uh, September, October, we're more at risk because we travel and uh, we travel, you know, people travel around Australia and so on. Uh, and so there's more contact in that way. So it would make sense to have a five to six month um, uh, gap uh, from that point of view. But policy has allowed a four month uh, interval and many people will take that option. The other reason for an earlier interval is that uh, it will boost us to Omicron. So um, the current boosters, even though they're aimed uh, at Delta and other strains before that actually, uh, will give us a boost to give us, get us back to a 90% protection against hospitalization and severe disease. Without the booster, the second dose versus Omicron, there's about a 70% protection, but, for, but that's only for people at risk. For people that are generally healthy, uh, they're still doing pretty well at around about 90% with the current vaccine with or without a booster. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Another question that's often been asked, uh, Gary, is Moderna or Pfizer for the booster? From an immunological point of view, one tends to think if you give a different vaccine, you'll get a broader immune response, and that's true. Uh, so getting Pfizer... Uh, and, or, and or Moderna after AstraZeneca or Pfizer, which most people have had. Some have had Moderna two dose, of course. Um, and the thought has been, well, why not mix and match and give a different vaccine to broaden the immune response? And that almost certainly happens. You do also get slightly more adverse reactions when you get that uh, second dose or booster for some people. Now, I hesitate to say that Moderna gives more adverse reactions. I don't think it does. It's statistically significant. Uh, but when you look at the reports, they do seem to be slightly more, again, I would underline they're not necessarily significant, but they do appear to be slightly more uh, adverse reactions. And I also have some information up here on the screen. And I can see that reports for the second dose, for example, with the Moderna vaccine show uh, 29% arthralgia, for, for example, which is an increase on the first dose of 15%. And that's not something we necessarily saw with other vaccines. 
And otherwise, you get the usual fever, fatigue, headache, chills, myalgia, Mm -hmm. nausea and vomiting, even in some cases, particularly in the under 17s, more than other age groups. So uh, that's been interesting. And the people with the least number of adverse reactions, uh, if you exclude injection site pain, other people over 65, they uh, have fewer reactions, at least in terms of raw numbers. Again, these are trends. They're not necessarily statistically significant, but they're interesting. So I don't think it really matters, David, whether you have a Moderna booster or a Pfizer booster or Novavax when it comes on board, uh, which is the protein vaccine. I really don't think it makes any difference. Atagi have made it clear, I think, either directly or indirectly or both that uh, Pfizer and Moderna are the preferred uh, boosters at this stage rather than the AstraZeneca vaccine. Thank you, Gary. Now, your comments on vaccines for children. Well, I, I'm uh, a little on the edge here. I, I feel that, yes, vaccines can be given to children, and I have to say the safety data from the US was much better than expected and looks very, very good. And it would appear that giving a third of the dose or half a dose has reduced uh, the incidence of myocarditis in those under 17. So that I think is really good news. And uh, parents and medical practitioners can be confident uh, in giving this vaccine, as I think uh, the adverse reactions we saw in the 18 to 30 year olds of myocarditis don't appear to be replicated in the under 18s. So that's good news there. That's the first thing. It still exists, but it's vanishingly rare. I can't give you a number on that, but I think it's something like one in 100,000. So uh, very, very rare. And as we all know, it's also quite treatable if spotted early. And that's important with any vaccine at any time to be aware of adverse reactions and go straight back to your GP or hospital if you feel you've got these adverse reactions in any way at all. That's important. So that's the good news uh, when it comes to vaccination of children. Philosophically, I I don't understand why we're vaccinating children because there is no burden of disease. The burden of disease is clearly in the immunocompromised and older person, very, very clearly. It is not in children. Uh, Also, the vaccine does not stop infection in anybody. So the vaccine will help enormously against hospitalisation and um, uh, ICU uh, events, but it does not stop infection and therefore it does not stop the spread of disease. So I'm really at a loss as to why we're vaccinating children, except there's a tremendous momentum in the community at the moment to do so. But I don't understand because normally uh, any vaccine, there would be evidence of significant burden of disease like measles or mumps rubella, uh, polio and so on. Uh, And we would target that particular group. We target older people for influenza and children under five and pregnant women uh, and the immunocompromised and the disabled for influenza vaccine because we know there's excessive burden of disease. Also, First Nation peoples, Aboriginals as well. So we care for those groups because we know we've got burden of disease and that's where we put the priority. Now, in this case, they're not priority in terms of burden of disease. And ethically... As you know, uh, we've written some opinions, editorials invited in the Daily Telegraph, uh, and together with Robert Boy, we've both expressed our view that these vaccines ethically are much better off going to countries that do not have vaccines Mm -hmm. or uh, going to those other Australians that need to be 
uh, helped over the line that are sitting on the fence uh, to try and get as many of the vulnerable population, that's all older persons and immunocompromised people, vaccinated. Uh, and we've achieved a tremendous success with 90-whatever percent now of double vaccination in those over 16. And when you look at those over 70, it's well into the high 90s, and that's been a tremendous success. So, you know, we have protected our, our population tremendously well, uh, and, that's, and that's been terrific. But as for vaccinating children, I think there are still question marks over that. I, I'm not convinced that we'll do anything or protect the adults or even protect children themselves from a so-called Omicron variant, which is incredibly mild. So I'm not sure what we're protecting children from. Mm, mm. It really doesn't make any sense to me as a virologist or someone who's been in the vaccination game for a long time and also working for World Health Organization. I think you need to, you know, we've got countries that have 1%, 2% vaccination rates. Mm. And we also know that in those situations, we saw Delta arise in India. We've seen Omicron arise in South Africa. These are countries with low vaccination rates. We saw Gamma arise in Brazil. Again, a low vaccination rate. We saw the uh, beta virus arise in England when it had no vaccination. So we need to get the world vaccinated. We are in one boat. We don't just live on an island called Australia. We live on the globe. And um, it's all adults that are vulnerable uh, that need to be vaccinated. Of course, we have the option. We have the luxury of the option and people can choose whether they um, want their children vaccinated or not. But it will not stop infection and it will not stop spread. Gary, I highly value your opinion. Thank you for that. I'm just going to touch on the topic of um, rapid antigen tests. Clearly, our uh, PCR testing had been overwhelmed, uh, having crashed and burned across the country. So people have been asked to go and do their own testing. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I always think it's tricky because, um, well, let's just take the PCR test. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's highly sensitive and 99 point whatever percent. It's almost 100% specific. So we know we're not going to get false positives and false negatives to speak of. We also know that it's, it's accurate, it's fast, uh, it's easy to do. And you're right, it's overwhelmed the system now. Um, and it, if you take day zero, um, when somebody gets infected, virus is excreted before symptoms on around about day two, uh, or nucleic acid, which can be picked up. And right through to around about certainly day seven, which is really the peak, and in some patients a bit longer, particularly if they're immunocompromised in some way or older, then you might uh, still find nucleic acid through to day 14, and in some cases, even longer, but that's rare. Now, that's nucleic acid. It's not virus. Uh, but it's certainly indicative of infection uh, with a coronavirus. The RAT test, the rapid antigen test, is also obviously useful. But everyone needs to understand that its specificity and sensitivity is quite different. The claim of sensitivity by the companies of around 90% is it under ideal conditions? And in the field, some reports have it as low as 70%. So let's call it 70 to 90% sensitive. Uh, and as for specificity, it's certainly not 100%. It's probably around about 95%. You will get false positives that way. Uh, so what are we doing? Well, we're asking people to take rapid antigen tests. 
which they do themselves. So now you're relying on an individual to carry out the test correctly. You're relying on an individual to take the swab correctly, which is the most critical step in the rapid antigen test. If you take the swab correctly, nose and throat, depending on the test or saliva, because there are several available, uh, then uh, if you take that correctly and then do the test correctly and follow the instructions and then dispose of it correctly, then it's probably a valid result. But I'd hate to estimate how many invalid results are out there because of poor sample collection. Uh, when you go for a PCR test, the people taking the samples that day that are highly trained and they've done it again and again. Uh, they don't make uh, any mistakes in terms of sample collection. They know how to do it and they do it efficiently. And the rapid antigen test will not pick up the antigen until it starts to be excreted on about day four or five, right? So, if, and it'll stop detecting it on about day six, seven. So there's a very narrow window there, David, and you have to be basically quite symptomatic. Mm. So if you're doing a rapid antigen test just because you happen to be a contact on day one or two, you'll miss it. Then you go out into the community, may turn positive and spread the virus. So from that point of view, I would argue the rapid antigen tests, because they miss so many mm. and apples are done so poorly, have got a very good chance of spreading the virus in the community. It's far better uh, to uh, rely on the PCR test and maybe beef up that side of it rather than a rapid antigen test. Now, I can understand um, why you'd use a rapid antigen test, but they're most effective when people are symptomatic and PCR tests are most effective whether you're, as whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic. So there's your choice. Uh, um, from a laboratory point of view, PCR is a gold standard. And that's surely what you would use if you really want to know uh, if you have uh, coronavirus or not. Rapid antigen test, only if you're symptomatic. But at the moment, I think what people are doing, it seems to me, is that they're all using rapid antigen tests because, you know, Johnny next door came down with coronavirus and they're not symptomatic and they use it and they say, I'm negative. Mm -hmm. And they keep going into the community. It's, it's very tricky. And then we have all this conflicting advice, as you know, David, uh, from different governments in different states and Commonwealth that have different ideas about what a contact is, whether it's four hours, one hour, two minutes, um, how long, uh, and so on, which is all incredibly confusing to people. Uh, and it actually doesn't make any scientific sense. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we had reports initially that the man who was an Uber driver in Bondi, passed it on fleetingly to others, or the person in the coffee shop passing it on to somebody else fleetingly um, just by walking past them, uh, so hardly any contact at all. And then we have other reports saying uh, that uh, you need four hours. This really doesn't make any sense, and this is pure, pure fiction, really. Mm. Very important people calm down a bit, I think, and, and understand what's going on. Viruses are spread by respiratory droplets, these particular viruses. They're not spread in any other way. If you're wearing a mask, uh, if you're socially distancing, if you're washing your hands, as we've said again and again, this is the best strategy to minimise virus. Vaccination, of course, is excellent, but it doesn't stop infection and will mm -hmm. stop more serious endpoints. So we can be clear on those points. And yes, get the booster after four to six months, whatever is appropriate follow GP's advice and so on. Uh, very, very important because your GP knows your complete health status, not just the fact that you want a vaccine. They know the whole story.
about a particular patient. And this, again, is a point that's missed. And the idea of uh, anybody just giving the vaccine for any reason just you know, floors me, I have to say. Uh, it's very important, I think, that people do go through their uh, GPs who have a full understanding of a person's medical history. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's a point that's been missed. So, um, yeah, there's lots of interesting things here that need new nuance, I think. Uh, and um, it needs some balance to come back into the discussion and into the argument. But I would hope that people are now convinced that vaccination is safe and effective. I would hope people are prepared to get their third dose. And in particular, my mantra, as you know, I hope people keep, in particular, social distancing appropriately uh, without being silly about it, uh, wearing a mask if they're in crowded places or places that are not well ventilated or they're travelling, uh, in any sort of transport is is a really good idea. Uh, and obviously hand washing. And while it's possible for the virus to be uh, spread uh, on surfaces and by touch, uh, that was a bit of a misnomer in the beginning of the pandemic, David, an emphasis was put on that. It's hardly spread by that route at all. Mm. It is clearly spread. And we've always known about all respiratory viruses that they're spread via droplets and micro droplets that hang in the air, possibly for some hours in a poorly ventilated room. And then others who come along can breathe those droplets in and the virus can begin replicating in the nose and throat. And I think this is just basic virology and epidemiology. We know that. And we don't need to get sidetracked by government policies or uh, spread via uh, touch uh, or surfaces. and all these other things. We don't need to be sidetracked. We just need a steady, sensible approach uh, uh, to the whole situation. I'm just going to ask for your opinion on a word that's been used a lot lately, and the word is mandatory. Well, there are a few few things to say about mandatory. When it comes to vaccination, um, you may know that uh, Robert Boy and I wrote in the uh, Murdoch papers today about why mandatory vaccination doesn't work and it is in fact quite divisive. And more importantly, it's entirely unnecessary for this particular virus. It's important to understand this. We don't need mandatory vaccination. We have 95% double vaxxed all over Australia now approximately with some pockets still to catch up. But uh, given that we have so many vaccinated, we don't need mandatory vaccination in any setting. We need to invest in the intelligence of people, the intelligence of the community at large, and let people make their own decisions. They they might be based on wrong data or wrong information, whatever decision they make if they don't take the vaccine, but fine. Uh, Don't make it mandatory. It only ever creates division and it creates an enormous amount of pushback. We have nothing to fear from the unvaccinated. Anybody who's vaccinated has got nothing to fear from the unvaccinated. It's as simple as that. All of us, whether we're vaccinated or not, can carry the virus asymptomatically. The only difference possibly is in outcome. And that's something the unvaccinated rather have chosen uh, to follow. Uh, So that's all out of our control, really. It would be quite silly to mandate vaccines. Having said that, Australia has mandated vaccines for healthcare workers, and we can understand good reasons for that in the same way we ask surgeons to be vaccinated to hepatitis B before they do their surgery. You know, this is just, again, makes common sense. Let's appeal to the common sense of individuals. But mandates, have, uh, sorry, vaccines have never been mandated in Australia, ever. And without mandates, we have at least 85% coverage in the country 
for all vaccines, except for influenza, uh, but I'm thinking childhood vaccines, is well into the 90s. There are some groups to catch up, but well into the 90s uh, for all our childhood vaccines on the National Immunisation Programme. Influenza is a different story, but we target groups for that. Under five, pregnant women, people over 65, people that are immunocompromised, people that are obese, et cetera, uh, are, are all targeted and encouraged by the community to take the vaccine. And again, in those particular groups, we have a fairly high coverage rate. We'd like it to be higher, but it's nevertheless pretty good uh, for influenza. So um, uh, that's the situation. Again, we have shingles vaccines and others for the older person, but we don't mandate them. We advise, we educate, and that's always been the way we've done it in Australia. And hopefully that will continue, David, rather than forcing it to take a vaccine. The other word, um, the other area the word is used um, is to mandate reporting. Now, again, I think it, I think that's a bit strong. We need to encourage people to report their rat tests. We need to encourage people to report their adverse reactions to the TGA website or through their GP. Uh, this is important. So we get a global picture around Australia that's accurate. The more people that report their positive or negative result even for a rat test, the more people that report their um, uh, symptoms uh, or adverse reactions due to any vaccine, in, you know, outside of COVID as well, is also important that the TGA receive that data. Uh, um, we can solicit these things through small cohorts and so on, and people do those studies, and that's useful, but it's important to get real-world data and encourage people to uh, report any adverse reactions, report their rat tests to the appropriate authorities. But again, I think the word should be encouraged. Gary, how about an update on Novavax? Well, the good news is I saw a tweet this week that uh, TGA will be looking at it this Friday and making a determination. So that's good news. The second thing is we know the World Health Organization has accepted uh, the Novavax vaccine uh, and pre-qualified it. So that's great news. And thirdly, we know the European Union and the USA have also accepted the vaccine uh, and registered the vaccine. Um, as we've said before on this program, David, this vaccine is a protein-based vaccine. Um, and uh, being a protein-based vaccine, it can be highly purified. We have history on this particular platform with influenza. Um, we know it's very safe. Uh, we know it gives very good immunogenicity. And while I haven't seen all the data from their phase three results, what I have seen really looks excellent and um, uh, protection to well over 90% against hospitalization, ICU and death. Uh, and this is excellent. Um, this vaccine, by the way, David, will only be registered, assuming it gets through the TGA for 18 and up, but there are studies being done by Novavax on the 11 to 17 group and also the under 11 group down to five. So that date is yet to come. Studies are still underway, but it's expected at this stage uh, that all these studies will uh, uh, be excellent. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens once the data is up. Supply was an issue. Um, are, are they able to ramp up their supplies? Yes, they can now. There, it was an issue because COVID itself shut down a lot of shipping and transport around the world. And this uh, uh, apparently impeded them in their manufacturing process. But as I understand it, all is now back to normal. So I think supply should be fine. Now, from, as a, from a virologist's point of view, Gary, uh, there will be people saying 
uh, look, uh, why don't I just wait for Novavax for my booster? And they are, say, four, five months out from their second shot. What would you advise? I think uh, a Novavax booster would be fine. Uh, it it uh, will broaden the immune response and it will be interesting to see uh, the uh, data on that as it comes through. But I would expect it to be an excellent booster. But I think as the government says, I mean, I agree with people in government who say the best vaccine you can get is the one that's available. I think that's right. I mean, if you need a booster now or are eligible for a booster now, then get that booster. I, I think that's an important message. You don't want to be in a situation where you're waiting and then your antibody wanes and then you get COVID and then suddenly you might find yourself in hospital if you're in a risk group. So it doesn't make sense to wait, really. Uh, I think it's important to get the vaccine that's available. I would agree with that policy and that strategy. Gary, it's always such a joy and pleasure to speak to you because I always learn so much. Are there things that has happened in the last few weeks that I might have missed? Uh, well, there's been a few false reports. Um, there was a report of a virus called Deltacron, uh, a combination of Delta and Omicron, but it was found, I mean, this created a bit of concern, uh, but it was found to be uh, an error by the country that reported it. So if you've heard of that, then please don't be concerned about that. There are some other false reports going around about preterm births occurring after COVID infection in pregnant women, irrespective of vaccination. Again, that's been tackled by various colleges in Australia and, in, news, and uh, in the United States. And the statements are quite clear that there's no evidence for this. This has appeared on Facebook uh, rather than in scientific journals, but all the colleges um, or many colleges around the world are simply saying this is not true. So I think that's an important one to debunk. Uh, it is important for uh, pregnant women to take the vaccine uh, and it will protect their infant. As you know, the virus cannot cross the placenta, but antibodies can. Uh, and that's uh, important to know. Uh, there are no further, uh, there's nothing further on treatments. And I think we're doing very, very well in that department, which is often undersold. But the various monoclonal antibodies available in the nucleoside analog remdesivir, uh, um, of course, the use of dexamethasone, oxygen, and anti inflammatories. Uh, is all important in treatment and has saved many, many lives. And although we do see people in ICU, very few die unless they have serious underlying conditions, uh, very few. So uh, we know we're in very good hands there when it comes to treatment in hospital. And of course, there are uh, the oral antivirals as well uh, that have also now uh, been registered and used, but these are really all only used in hospital. It's not something you can get through your GP and then the chemist. It It's something that's used in hospital and it should remain that way because it should be reserved for people in a serious condition or more serious condition. They are the new drugs, of course, that we've all heard about that um, we are supposed to give to patients at home to stop them going to hospitals. Um, do you know much more about them? Well, they have around about as um, a seventy percent. They're about seventy percent effective, uh, and when they become more available, yes, they can be prescribed and, and given to people uh, to help the situation. But Omicron is so mild, David, so mild. This is becoming clearer and clearer. This is almost—I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it—it's almost a vaccine virus. Uh, this is. Um, 
you know, in many ways, a virus we needed to have or wanted to have in the community. We needed to firstly displace Delta. It's now around about 70% around the world compared to Delta about 30%. And we know it's far less uh, invasive and it's not causing uh, the degree of severity that Delta does. Uh, we know that for sure. We know it's spreading faster, so it will knock Delta out in due course. And we've seen Delta knock out Alpha, Beta, Gamma in the past, and Wuhan, of course. So these viruses are now a dream of the past. Delta will become the same and Omicron will take over. In some, on some continents, it's uh, in 90%, like Africa. Europe is about 80% Omicron. Australia and the region's about 70, 75% Omicron. The US is moving into the 70s now. Within a month, Delta should almost disappear. Uh, and that's going to be great news in terms of hospitalization and ICU because Omicron is far rarer when it comes to severe cases. Before I leave you, Gary, I just want to talk about how fast the Omicron peak seems to actually pass. Uh, we're seeing a little, we saw that in South Africa. And, and is it true that it's also happening in the UK? Yes, it seems to be, David. It seems to be. But remember, Delta is also in the UK. Uh, so when you've got you know, 20, 30 percent Delta still, then people will certainly be going to hospital uh, if they're older or, or at risk now. But Omicron is moving very, very quickly and outpacing Delta. And of course, it escapes the immune response, uh, which is why it's spreading so quickly, whereas the vaccine we have at the moment is far better against Delta. So does that make sense? So it's moving faster, uh, even though it doesn't, uh, even though it escapes your immune response, but that's what you want. And then if you give the booster, then that will protect you against Omicron. Um, now we can, uh, this is just a booster to Delta, by the way, we'll bring that percentage back up into the 90s when we get even more specific boosters against Omicron itself, which are also coming, uh, then uh, or protein vaccines against Omicron itself, then we should be able to uh, protect uh, people against Omicron and hopefully the world. Uh, keep remembering, I keep trying to make the point that we need to vaccinate everyone. Um, we need to get into Indonesia and Asia. Uh, we need to get into Africa in particular, South America, because this is where the variants arise, often in immunocompromised people. So it's very, very important that we try and vaccinate everyone, which will not stop the spread, but ameliorate it. But in particular, it may well stop the rise of variants. Uh, and this is important. And as we slowly move to some kind of herd immunity, I'm not sure when that will be, but if we do and we have a mild virus like Omicron that's going around and stimulating our immune response, our ICU rates should drop dramatically. Uh, and hospitalisation rates as well. So that's the expectation. I, I'll be a bit of a daredevil and say that this might happen within two to three months. Mm. Uh, and Omicron should take over because it's going that fast. And uh, our hospitalisation and ICU rates around the world should start dropping, not because of Omicron causing hospitalisation and ICU, but the Delta is going to start to disappear. And once Delta starts to disappear, then all those serious outcomes are going to drop dramatically. So I think Omicron uh, is going to do us a favour. And if there's another variant that's even milder and even more infectious, then that would be fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that in combination with, remember it's always in combination with high vaccination rates, which are also in combination with 
things that people forget, uh, social distancing, masks in crowded places and hand washing. Uh, very, very important to keep that up and keep up that awareness. Gary, I'm going to leave you there because there's so much you've given us. And I will always say that um, you have always, without a doubt, emphasised the need for personal protection. And I really value that. Well, thank you, David. It is really important and, and, and important to keep educating people about this. They needn't fear the virus. They just need to be careful with personal protection, vaccination, encouraging others to get vaccinated. We need a community and national approach, which we have, but now we need a global approach. Thank you so much once again, Gary. And hopefully this year is a better year for all of us. I think it might be. <laughs> My friend, I shall leave you. And thank you for the time you've given me and that lovely conversation. Well, thank you. It's great talking to you and all the very best. And I uh, hope we can talk again in the future. So uh... I look forward to that, Gary, very much indeed. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.